I vow to avoid taking what is not given. I vow to avoid sexual misconduct. I vow to avoid false speech. I vow to avoid malicious speech. I vow to avoid harsh speech. I vow to avoid gossip. I vow to avoid I vow to avoid ill will. I vow to avoid wrong Excellent, excellent, excellent. And let's just take a few minutes for reflection um, to see if we have uh, broken any of our vows. You know, when we make a vow, we make it to ourselves. Of course, it affects other people. But we take a vow to oneself, to thine own self be true. And so this is a time for introspection to see where we uh, have done good, it's important to recognize and where we need improvement. Killing is not just taking a life. Sometimes it's, it's uh, taking away a person's confidence. Uh, sometimes it's uh, killing their reputation. Sometimes, you know, we have to look and see what, what really causes the light to go out inside, uh, how we wound each other. The Buddha called it stabbing each other with verbal daggers. Taking what is not given is not just a matter of stealing something like money. It's uh, also abusing uh, time or authority or um, um, being given an inch, taking a mile. Um, we have our own ways, our own propensities. And the purpose of, of uh, the practice is to be able to see them and to uproot them. This is done, um, maybe the seeing can be done on the pillow, but the uprooting takes place off the pillow. Sensual misconduct is not just uh, sexual misconduct. That's uh, maybe the least kind. It uh, has the most immediate uh, consequences and, uh, and bad effects, but it comes from uh, a consistent habit of eyes being uh, running out to see things and itchy ears wanting to hear things and a mind run rampant, unrestrained and uncontrolled, uh, wanting to uh, think things or know things, uh, things that are not necessarily um, beneficial or helpful. It's having unrestrained appetites for various activities in our life. This is a, a way of learning the joy of um, restraint, the Buddha calls. And we think restraint's such a bad thing. I don't want anybody to tie me down. But 
This is about self-restraint. No one else doing it for you. But you looking and deciding whether your own thoughts, your words, and your activities actually bring about your suffering. And if so, you're the only one who can do something about it. This is taking responsibility for one's own happiness. It's not about suffering. It's about uprooting suffering. And once we see those spots, those uh, fetters, the things that tether us to unhappiness, then we're in a position to do something different, to turn our heads and look in a different direction, to generate uh, a uh, neutralizing thought, to undertake um, an opposite action or response that will mitigate the internal suffering, mental suffering, and physical pain that's arising. And when we do this again and again, we become confident in the Dharma that it is truly medicine for our sickness. This is our daily practice. So today I just wanted to talk to you for a few minutes. <laughs> that, that really. Uh, <laughs> because I wanted us to spend a little time in um, in meditation in the within the 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 sangha to make sure that you're getting the technique right to be able to do it uh, at home. <clears throat> and as you know, within within Buddhism, there are many different lineages, much like there are in in other or sects, uh, or um, as much like there is in various. Um, theistic denominations. It's just that ours is not, not theistic. It's not that we don't embrace the notion of there being other classifications of beings that we might call by whatever name. We may call them gods, we might call them devas, call them angels. We call, you know, just different celestial beings just as there are terrestrial beings of which we are of one class, which is uh, the uh, human human beings, but we have animals and we have other types of terrestrial beings or beings that are, uh, are tied to uh, uh, a fundamental uh, uh, earthbound uh, structure. Um, but he just simply said that, you know, no beings need to worship any other beings. Just know that, that a, a being uh, appears in the universe, you know, according to uh, their own temperament and mind stream. So if we ever thought that heaven was going to be here on earth, forget that. Heaven is heaven, earth is earth. There are planes of existence that where the beings there have more wholesome minds. The beings are, are more unified uh, than, than this. So you could call that a heavenly realm. It doesn't necessarily mean it's like up high and we're down low. You know, if you could just think in a, in a different kind of fashion, these may be overlaid one, uh, one upon another. So maybe all of the realms are, are, are right here. You know, so don't think in those terms. Just think of mind stream and uh, state of mind. And you can kind of understand how there are some be beings with a certain state of mind and some beings with a different state of mind. And uh, there's an old saying, birds of a feather flock together. So I can pretty much tell a person's state of mind by the company that they keep, you know, um, um, because you won't have a, even a, a desire, you know, to hang with certain people who have a certain way of, of viewing the world and viewing each other. You'll find it uncomfortable 
to spend more than a, a few minutes with them. Or if you do, it's there to gladden their mind, but certainly not to um, um, devolve into the, their, uh, um, the, the frequency of, of their mind, their mind thoughts. So if you think you are uh, in a certain place, you know, the Buddha says, examine the company that you keep. And that'll give you a pretty good idea of where you really are. And if you like that, stay there. If you don't, then, um, then maybe some kind of shift is in order. It's like wanting to go forward, but looking backwards is very hard to do. You might stumble over a rock, you trip and fall. You might even go over the edge of the cliff. So if you're wanting to go in this direction, look in this direction is what his advice to us is. But we have these different denominations as well. Sometimes we, we call them schools and lineages within, within Buddhism. We have the northern school, we have the southern school, uh, and that would be characterized mostly by uh, Theravada or today Theravada, the only remaining southern, southern school. Uh, and then the northern schools would be like Mahayana and, and Vajrayana. And then within each uh, of these three schools, you have various uh, lineages that would be something like denom denominations. And this arose for uh, a couple of reasons. One is that in different places, cultures are different, and people, so people come and approach a subject from a certain frame of reference, from the frame of reference of their culture and their experiences. And so uh, it's important for a teacher to be able to speak to their, um, uh, to speak to their sangha from a, a, a place of experience uh, in their life. Uh, so I remember when I was uh, training and, and my, I had Chinese training and I had Tibetan training and they want you to learn all of this Tibetan, all this Chinese. So I'm like, for what? I don't speak. I don't live in Tibet or China. I don't speak Tibetan or China. Better a few words in English that can be understood. And so, um, so I didn't learn all that. Now, Pali is completely out of the question for me uh, because the Buddha didn't even speak Pali. I mean, that was like a language that was created just to record the sayings, but he didn't speak Pali and neither did any of his disciples. Uh, so that tells us two things. One is it's probably not going to be uh, as useful, and I'm not saying we can't learn some Pali. Even today, some of the scholars are encouraging us not to translate everything. But anybody who thought that you really get the full understanding or the deepest understanding strictly through uh, linguistics has already missed the boat. It's not uh, so much the actual words, but where they're pointing to. So we use our intellect to see where they're pointing. The Buddha would say, it's something like this. It's something like that. Go in that direction. You know, so if we get all hung up on the translation, um, then, uh, or, or the actual words, we will miss the essence and the efficacy of the teaching. And we'll just become like Paul parrots and bickering around words and meaning, but we not make much progress in our life. And so he uh, recommends that we keep it simple and just look where it's pointing and figure out a space within that domain to, la to land. Um, so different lineages often say, like, our Dharma is the highest Dharma, only our method of teaching or our method of practices, you know, can, can save all living beings. And, and there's not a, a single living being who cannot be saved if they learn this particular practice, you know, something like that. Not one who cannot attain enlightenment if they, uh, uh, if they practice our way. You know, so there, there is this propensity to feel that way when we have found something that works for, for us. Or sometimes it's the only thing we were exposed to. And so we can say that it's working, but there was actually another method that could have worked better, but you didn't know it. You weren't, you weren't exposed to it. So sometimes, um, uh, teacher will come here, not so much the uh, lay teachers, but sometimes the, the monastics will come and uh, 
Uh, when you devote your life, change your clothes, cut your hair, you know, and you take on this persona, it's like a priestcraft, then you, you like start cleaving to or clinging to your, your tradition. Uh, we don't do that here, but that's the way it is in most, in most places because, you know, and then they say this is a, uh, you must practice this lineage purely. That means you can't look at anything outside the lineage or you might get confused. Well, I just have a little difficulty understanding how the Buddha's teachings, if they are his teachings of, of, of the teachings of an awakened mind, can confuse people so much. If there's confusion, it's because we've isolated, extrapolated some teachings and put them into a system, and now the other teachings can't fit congruently in it. But if you don't think in terms like that. Just think of what do I need today to take the next step, to be a better person, to uproot my own suffering, to take responsibility for my life. If we're thinking in these kinds of ways, then any uh, dharmic teaching is good for is good for us. And don't pay any, so much attention to what lineage it is. I remember when I was in the church, as soon as you met a person, they wanted to know, like, who's your pastor? You know, especially if they had a pastor of like a mega church that had 20,000 members, you know, a, a televangelist, well, my pastor is so-and-so. What does that to do with you and your level of development? Not a whole lot. And so, uh, so you find that we, when we leave one place and go to another, you know, you start to find those same things there because we're there. We just bought, we picked up from here and went over here and we brought all our stuff with us. And so this practice is a practice of peeling back the layers. Uh, and we come from an assumption that everyone has uh, Buddha nature. Everyone has the potential for awakening. The thing is, though, I tell you, um, that this idea that, that we have a Dharma that every single person is capable of, of taking in and waking up in this lifetime is a wrong view. You know, there are some living beings that cannot be liberated in this lifetime because they have a polluted mind and, uh, that leans continuously towards deeds and, and, um, uh, Deeds that are just so harmful that they set up the conditions for more ignorance in the mind. Now, some of us might know somebody like that. We might know of somebody like that. The thing is not to let that mind take away our mind. You know, so some of us are, are like leaning to our dark side because of somebody else's dark side. And we're being uh, wrapped up in um, uh, anger or frustration, or we can even call it righteous indignation if we want to. Um, but we're finding ourselves um, getting into a position that our own thoughts are not the most useful, are not the most ben beneficial, that they are actually harmful. You know, um, it's... Uh, and so if we know that not everybody is going to be uh, awakened in this lifetime and that everybody's not going to have the uh, propensity to do good or even the potential to do good. Let's say a person is born with one leg. Leg, they're never going to walk on two. That's just it. So we don't have to like look at that and say, oh, what a terrible thing that they didn't get that second leg going. They don't have it. You know, and that's how we can understand ignorance and incapacity to conjure up something because it's just not there in this, in this, in this lifetime. The causes and conditions have, uh, did not present themselves for that to be, um, possible. And then sometimes it's a matter of our seed landing in poor soil. It can't, uh, uh, and so the fruit that comes forward, whatever plant or tree it is that grows, is, is spindly and it's weak um, because it just wasn't planted in good soil. So that takes a transplant, right? It needs taking out or giving it some plant food or 
or it might need, it might be, when I was starting to buy plants for hardwood, I was all the wrong stuff, you know, so I have shade plants in the sun, sun plants in the shade, you know, and I'm like, like, what's wrong, everybody else's, you know, place looks so good, and, and I was just really, uh, I was perplexed by it. I read the instructions, it says it needs six to eight hours of sunlight a day. I'll plant something, and I don't know, maybe it, it got five hours of sunlight. You know, it just wasn't going good. And I'd have to dig it up. Poor Pops. He had constantly digging up and we'd move something to someplace else. Sometimes it was just too much, I guess, clay or too much something in the soil and, you know, and it just wouldn't, uh, and it wouldn't grow. But that lets us know we have to be continually, and then sometimes the roots just get to be too much in where we have it. We have to trans, uh, uh, pot something. We have to take it out of its container and we need to give it a bigger container so that it can grow. But the roots need more space to go deeper and then the plant can go taller and become more vibrant and alive. And we're very much like that. If you want to know this whole thing, uh, just look at nature. You can look at nature in all its many facets and you can understand, you know, how, uh, how we are, because we're just a part of nature. <laughs> we think we're so much different from everything else in nature. You know, uh, uh, this this sense of a separate self and this kind of uh, uh, this delusional ego, this I amness, this conceit I. This is like all nature, like just operates in order except humans. You know, we we like just. We just mess up everything, but we also make things better. It's just a matter of which side of that we're going to be on. And so we are all living under different karmic conditions. No two of us, you know, have the same life. No two of us have exactly the same experiences. You know, no two of us see things exactly the same. We don't even hear things the same. You know, a person can say one thing and somebody hears something entirely different. You know, a person can even see one thing and the person right next to them sees something entirely different because we don't see or hear or understand things as they are, but as we are. And if we remember that, we'll take everything with a grain of salt. We'll take everything we want, uh, you know, how we would tell our children, count to 10. Like if they're getting ready to have a history, you need to count to 10. Because they needed a minute before they were going to like, you know, like back, back on me. You need to take a minute and count to 10. But in teaching them to do that, they learned not to like step into a hole they couldn't get out of or or uh, they learn not to um, say something they couldn't take back. Because once you say it, it's out the gate. You know, even if you didn't mean it that way, just unthoughtful in speech. Sometimes we're just unthoughtful in speech. Or sometimes we just don't know how to say a thing, you know? And so we say a thing and, and it offends someone. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I am guilty of not being so politically correct. And that was before we got to this like Me Too climate. You know, where like you gotta be so careful about every single thing you say, every single thing you do, because somebody's just waiting. It's like like we just looking for something to jump on and to, to beat somebody down about. I mean, and we'll go back a long time, you know, digging up our grievances. We'll go back a very, very long time. And I'm not saying some things don't need to be addressed. It's not just a matter of addressing things, though. It's how they, how they are addressed. And so right now we're in this uh, kind of freakish kind of period where, uh, you know, like um, there's so much vitriol, you know, being spewed out and, and people appealing to our, our lowest nature, our most sensitive parts, the places where we're the most deeply wounded or where we're the most deeply concerned and bringing up old resentments and these things. But we have to watch out for this. This is where our practice comes in because those are the voices of the world and we're going to hear those continually unless we're out of this world. I mean, there's no way to get away from them. 
But if we don't have something internal that helps us balance all of that, then we're going to be wretched undone, and we're going to cause a lot of hurt and suffering for other people. And we'd be no different than the people that we're talking about, the people who, who we're saying, don't be like them. And so we all have these uh, different karmic uh, uh, differences based on the rebirth-linking consciousness uh, that was part of the makeup of us coming into being in this life, and then also uh, the family that we grew up with. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's a truly, truly a, a cosmic joke because I think our families bring us more suffering than anybody, you know. And, and yet, you know, like we feel somehow like we like have to stay with that forever and ever, you know. Um, but I mean, like I love my sisters and brothers, but we weren't twins. I wasn't, they, we weren't tethered coming in. I came in alone, I'm going out alone. So I had to decide even with my siblings, you know, how, how close is this going to be? You know, how much do we have um, a similarity in, in mind and in heart and in great wishes for our life? I mean, these are things that we have, we have to do. And if we're not capable of making these kinds of decisions, we suffer and we cause others suffering. Of course now, if you build up your muscles and you, you're exercised, you know, it's like trying to pick up a 50 pound weight and you can only pick up five pounds, you know, then don't, then don't do it. But if you have your muscles exercised by reason of use and you can pick up a 50 pound weight, then you can deal with that. You can deal with that sibling. You can deal with that partner. You can deal with that friend. You can even deal with that stranger who may have completely opposite views from you, completely different ways of understanding and knowing the world. But it won't throw you off base. If it throws you off base, give it up. If it doesn't throw you off base, if you can stay and do some harm and do some good, I'm sorry, then stay and do some good. You know, but you have to know yourself and what you're capable of doing, what you're capable of, of handling. So he says that, that we will experience beneficial effects from practicing a Dharma only if that Dharma, that teaching corresponds to us, corresponds to our karma, corresponds to our experience. And, you know, we will not experience beneficial effects from practicing a true Dharma if that Dharma does not correspond to our karma does not correspond to our, our uh, uh, does not address our propensity or our personality. So some people, you have to be soft with them because that's the only way that they're going to hear. To some others, you have to be strong with them. You have to be tough with them because that's the only way that they're going to hear. For some, you have to break it down like baby and grind it up like baby food because that's the only way they're going to be able to digest it. For others, you know, that's not going to do it for them. They need strong meat. And so a teacher has to know what each one needs. But more than that, a person has to know what they need for themselves. He said, he said, be a lamp unto your own feet and a light unto your own path. And this requires something of us to be able to get into that place. So although there are extremely wonderful dharmas, a master who possesses such dharmas, who understands such dharmas, who have realized such dharmas, still cannot give it to ones who cannot receive it successfully. It can actually do more harm. Some things, uh, when you talk about them, you have to, it has to be pre-framed. Uh, a lot of times when I'm having a discussion with someone who has a, maybe a, 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 a different view about the nature of reality, and they want to come and ask a question, and they want to answer it in five words. They want a one-minute exposition on what the Dharma is. You can't get it in a minute. If you don't have more time than that, don't ask, because it's going to take more time than that. You know, and so it's just about understanding that every question does not have to be answered. That's number one. You know, sometimes people 
ask a question and we're talking about apples and they ask a question about oranges that's not the time to talk about oranges because we're talking about apples and if you do it'll get mixed up and people will get confused now sometimes that's just the the uh uh the craftiness of the uh delusional mind uh we don't really realize it but uh it comes about because like well i have an aversion to uh, something in this teaching or the way this conversation is going. So then my mind just jumps right over here and say like, and then ask a question about something over here because I don't want to deal with this over here. I don't want to talk about this over here. And so in, uh, particularly in a, in an assembly, it kind of gets like that. So you'll be talking about ABC and somebody come and ask you about one, two, three, right? You know, but that's a, di a diversion, a deflection of the conversation. So, so one has to be able to clearly see this. It's not always that you don't want to answer that question, you know, but maybe it's a question that needs to be answered in private. Maybe it's a question that doesn't need to be answered right now. Maybe they're asking the wrong question. Maybe, um, maybe they are asking the right question, but this is not the right form. This is not the right time to address it. Or maybe it's the, it's the, it could be a good time for it to be addressed, but I'm not the right person to address it. You know, maybe the person doesn't have enough confidence in me to hear it from me. Maybe the person just doesn't like me. Maybe the person thinks I don't like them. Maybe, you know, we don't know, but it's all of these things coming to every single minute of interaction that we have with one another. And so you can imagine that this life can become for us very complicated and constantly um, moving uh, just second to second, minute to minute. I would just like to wake up one day and things don't change. You know, like every day there's some change. Every day. People are constantly changing. Their thoughts are constantly changing. And some days I wake up with the changes that occur in Hartwood daily. You know, and I'm like, oh my goodness, could I have just one day that was like yesterday? You know, um, but that's the, you know, this is what we sign up. We don't like this. Don't come back. Don't come back to this world in again. You know, so there's a way out of this world. Uh, and, and the Buddha Dharma teaches that way of escape, the way leading upward two realms of existence. And he and he does it in a strange way, way because, you know, knowing that we're so consumed with this notion and this idea of an individual self as me against the world, and um, uh, I'm sit seated at the seat of my universe, and this conceit I causes us to see everything from a, 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 a egocentric space. So he, he works at countering that or balancing that with the concept of non-self, you know. And that's a whole, that's a whole teaching that, and it's a way of peeling back the, the layers of the, the structure, uh, shifting the structures of appearances for us that we can see the world and see each other and see ourselves in a different way, uh, in a more beneficial way, in a more unified way. He calls it creating a unified field. And the more of us that become unified in this way, the, the uh, less uh, fragmentation there is in the world and the, and the less fear there is in the world. Uh, the easier it is to bounce back from an upset. Uh, the easier uh, it is to uh, get along with others. And as uh, um, I think his name was uh, Reverend, Reverend, I think it was Jeremiah Wright said, the more we'll recognize that different is not deficient, does not mean deficient. And we'll understand and accept differences. You know, no, we like differences in everything but people. You know, we like different flavors, we like different sounds, you know, we like different sights, we like different colors, we like different 
clothing, we like different, we like different hairstyles, we like different perfumes, we like different, we like different things except when it comes to people, we just want them to be all just like me, think just like me, you know, um, do what I want to do, uh, and, and that is, comes from having an egocentric view of life. So, this path is about really uprooting that. So it doesn't really have anything to do with people out there. You know, it has everything to do with ourselves in here. It's about self-mastery. And he gives us encouragement. I mean, he tells us we messed up. We are messed up. He says that his, uh, he is like a doctor. And the teachings are like medicine. And so I love this practice. It's all about finding the right fixes for Panyawadi, for Harold, for Susan. Each one of us finding the right medicine. And, and this, it takes some investigation. Not like just rolling in here in a weekly Dharma talk, you know, and, and rolling out. It's not just that. It's not just intellectual uh, ascent. Oh, it's not even good-heartedness. Have you ever noticed that <laughs> uh, uh, some people, not all, but some people who are the most loving people, you know, have the most loving hearts, they're also the ones that be so easily frightened, so easily bruised, so easily shaken, so easily hurt, so quick to judge others. But that's because it takes more than just having a good heart to live truth successfully. It takes more than that. To go against the worldly stream of deluded thinking, yet without fighting anyone or anything, takes being willing to honestly face our own fears and our own narrow-mindedness. This is the first step towards transformation, the willingness, because this is going to cost something. You know, it's going to cost us something. It's going to really cost us something. It's going to cost us ourselves. So we have to decide whether we're willing to pay this. If not, there are many other things that we can do that won't cost as much. You know, but this is going to cost that. It requires a changed view of the whole stewardship of our lives and everything we possess, or think it's ours, or say we own, an uprooting of the me and mine. And how to do this in a way that uh, doesn't like uh, destroy ourselves, yet raises the standard of our concern for others. Don't we have any more graciousness than what we're offering now? Don't we have any more capacity to share what we have than what we're sharing now? You know, where your heart is, your treasure is. Well, I walk and look at that bowl at the end of Dharma. It's so pitiful. I know where the hearts of the people are. I know. Because we had to save that $5 for, for a Starbucks coffee. I know. But some give all. Some give little or none. This is an a, a individual thing that one is asked to ponder. How does something, you know, big, I, I, how... How can one person, five people, ten people do it? It's impossible. But we all can do it if it has benefit, and if it has merit to us. It's going to require patience and compassion. You know, we need 
to offer genuine grace and support to the process. I say to the process, to the process. You know, if you're having a hard time loving somebody, don't worry about it. You just love the process. If you love this process of awakening, it will, it will include them. It will graph them in, even the one you find most difficult to be with. It will graft them in, or it will allow, if it's not the right time and there needs to be a parting away, there can be a parting of the ways and, and you know, don't even, they don't have to leave mad, but they do have to go. It's always the question for me when I talk about this. It's like, well, what about the abused, you know, wife or whatever? I'm not saying stay somewhere and let somebody continue to, you know, to pummel you. No. You can leave. They can leave. Whatever has to happen that's beneficial, that guards the well-being and the safety, then do that. And I'm not just talking about physical abuse. I'm talking about mental, emotional abuse as well. But each one of us has to take the responsibility for our own well-being, not of what she did to me or what he did to me. No. That's... That's self-mastery. So we have to have compassion first for ourselves. I know some people, they're just trying to love up and heal everybody, but they have no compassion for themselves. Then, then what is their yardstick? What is their barometer? I have people who want to go out and be healing everybody else. And they need healing themselves. Physician. Heal thyself. This is the way that we can live life in a truly meaningful, truly meaningful way. And that's the joy of the dumb. But this is the good news. I mean, everybody's looking sad. Maybe it's the way I'm delivering. I'm not delivering it good. But, but don't pay any attention to how I'm delivering. Just get where the words are pointing. If you do, you will find that it will change your life. Or when you wake up one day and like you want like my day to the, I just like for something to stay the same for two days in a row, you know, that I don't have to like think through some another change. It, you know, it helps. It helps because it reminds me this is Sam Sarah. This is where I am. So what am I going to do with it? And I take back my personal power to be in the moment and to be able to tuck and roll. Now we have to be able to tuck and roll. So Buddha likened the Dharma to medicine. But it's not a take it all or take anything formula. That's what I'm saying. Some of what I said today goes for you individually. Some of it just it does not. Not because it's over your head, but that's not for you today. Just look for and lean into what's for you today. We need specific medicines for specific illnesses that have varying degrees of severity in specific individuals. In other words, we need prescriptions. No. Then we find ourselves in a situation where the doctors are also sick. Like me, you know? So, so there's this added layer of needing to tend to our own sickness while simultaneously trying, you know, to be there for somebody else. So the best I can do is point you to the same doctor that I'm seeing and to point you to the same medicine that I'm taking. You see the complexity of remedy. So the Dharma gives us this medicine in various doses and various forms and it provides food for thought, you know, to challenge our assumptions. You know, we talk about the assumptions about the nature of reality, but like, what is that, the nature of reality? It challenges our assumption about whatever we're thinking about right now that's bothering us. Just, just go with that, you know, or, or how we're seeing something. Uh, it offers exercises to rewire the brain that enable us to drop old patterns and, and act on new intentions. 
You know, I, I look and I'm 30 pounds overweight, and it's not because I'm fat. Obviously, all my 30 pounds is right here, the whole 30 pounds right here. But I was listening to a doctor today, and she was, uh, she was touting her new, you know, weight loss method, and she was talking about why willpower alone doesn't work, you know, and she was talking about what we need to rewire the, I don't know, the brain around our um, addictions around food or, or around our, our comfort things. And she went into this, uh, into this uh, uh, long 30 minutes, you know, you, you couldn't even fast forward. I just want to get to the salient points, you know, because I don't want to know how to lose weight for the whole body. I just want to know what to do about belly fat. You know, that's, that's, that's all I wanted. But I went through the whole thing and she never did just get to that. You know, but it's, it's, it's like, a, so I said, this is the wrong thing for me. You know, so I went and I Googled something else. And I went straight to the heart of the matter, belly fat. And I said, these things right here you have to do. I looked at them and said, okay, so this is not for me to take care of today. Because I'm not really, um, not, you know, committed to that. I mean, I got to have bigger fish to fry. And so, so I'm work. oh, I guess that's not a good boot. <laughs> That came up for way long time. Okay, all you vegetarians, please forgive me. Um, you don't have to edit that out. You can just leave it right there in the tape. Uh -huh. So, so, so we have to know at any given time, like what we can work on. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. I can say that one. Uh, you know, so we have to take our time and things, and we have to set our own uh, priorities. And our priorities are not always everybody else's. Uh, and if we are, are running after trying to meet everyone else's priorities, we may never get the things that we're charged with taken care of. And so sometimes we just have to come to full stop. And that's what this practice is about. Training ourselves to be able to come to full stop. To just stopping. To just stopping. It teaches us how to cultivate a kind of deep equanimity that results in a certain kind of contentment with what we have and not always needing something to be better. Not just being accepting of how some things are. If we can make them better, fine. But they don't always have to be better. Sometimes things are just good enough, and that's enough. This kind of, of contentment that can be developed in us. And truly seeking, see, seeking, seeing what causes our dukkha are um, that that this basic unsatisfactoriness of life that makes us have to be doing something different every hour or every day or every week or every month or every year, you know? It's pervasiveness and, um, and we often define this kind of dukkha as only negative. But if we could see that what we consider positive such as pleasure, such as the perks of, of privilege, such as getting what we want, such as doing what we want, when. When we start to see that there is uh, uh, an inherent suffering in this as well, and possibly more suffering than not getting what we want, then we will change how we approach life and how we relate to each other. This is the beginning of wisdom. And it leads to a dispassion for the world of experiences as we know it. And it allows for the construction of a new world. And that's what we need. We need a new world, and it lies within the hearts and the minds of the beings 
of this world, principally the homo sapien sapiens. That's us. That's us. This other shore that the Buddha talks about, it isn't someplace else. This other shore, it's right here. But it entails an entirely different way of being in the world. Not many of us are really devoted to that. We just want things to be better for us, that is, for me and mine. And if that's our motivation, unfortunately, this Dharma will not help you much. But if it is to be part of constructing a new world, I'm not saying a new world order, that means something different, because we've already decided what that is. But I'm talking about a world that's built on the highest qualities of being, refined in our thoughts and in our speech and in our actions, and being patient and kind and long-suffering, and being selfless and fearless and courageous in being truthful in being able to overlook a fault and being able to tolerate a slight this Dharma offers that and he said it all happens it unrolls from within our own innermost being. And it starts with simply stopping. Coming to the absolute stilling of thoughts that have been formed by the voices of the outer world. And we've heard them so much that they're all in our head. That's what our thoughts are. But there is a place that we can get to where all those thoughts are stilled. They're not permanently stilled, but they're stilled for a few minutes or a few hours or a few days. You can go around, nothing bothers me, nothing bothers me. But we know that that place exists once we experience it. And we come back to it again and again. And gradually, little by little, we are transformed. Little by little. Baby steps. But take steps we must. Yeah. And so for the next just three minutes, if we can just sit. So it's one thing that helps us to have so quiet so many thoughts. It's just to put all of our attention on one thing. And he says, a good thing is the breath, because in bringing our awareness to the breath, we can establish four foundations of mindfulness. We can feel the breath. Feeling is just feeling. To breathing in and breathing out with our attention, our awareness on the breath. We just know we're breathing in and breathing out, sometimes long, sometimes short. Sometimes it's a fine, subtle breath. Sometimes it's a coarse breath. Sometimes it's smooth, sometimes it's choppy. But it's just a feeling.
And off the pillow, we can use this same awareness when we encounter situations in life and feelings arise. It's a feeling. Feelings come and feelings go. And if we can wait 10 seconds before acting on a feeling, we'll find that that feeling changes. And so our corresponding action can be different. And then we feel some sense of joy. It's the kind of joy that comes with the confidence in knowing that one can restrain themselves can get through a feeling until wisdom can prevail. It helps us to go to the uncomfortable places, to sometimes do what we absolutely think is the right thing to do. But it might be difficult to say, not wanting to hurt someone's feelings, maybe. Not wanting to deal with the fallout that comes from having to say it, perhaps. But still, we can get through it when we start to realize that feeling is just feeling. And when you say, I'm angry, like, what does that feel like? How do you know you're angry? You may feel constriction in the chest. You may detect it from other, some other sense gate, like I literally see red. But I don't know what happens to you, but you know what happens to you. But the next time that rises up, just say feeling, feeling. Feeling comes and feeling goes. Pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling. Neither pleasant nor unpleasant, just a feeling. And notice how as we just begin to investigate this one object, the object of the breath, how the body seems to settle down. How there's some ease in the mind, a lessening of so many thoughts. Notice how wonderfully the body can cooperate with our intention. And begins to release endorphins. Lessening our need to intellectually assess the moment rather to allow us to actually experience, be in the moment. <laughs> Notice how much more aware we become of our body and even of our environment the sounds that we hear, the sensations in the body. So actually focusing heightens our awareness of everything. Notice the rhythm that becomes established, like moving on a single wavelength, 
or certain uh, rhythmic motion with everyone else in the room. Not so much like a box of Cracker Jacks now, more like a sea of fish. Coming back to this way of being several times a day helps to trim our tabs, helps to bring us back to a set point. Instead of running out and just going further and further out, it helps bring us back. Let's call this our home base. Do it as often as you can throughout the day. And that's the beginning and the middle and the end of our training that is good. May you be well and happy and peaceful. May no harm come to you and no danger. May you always be able to meet with the inevitable difficulties of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.